If you have your Bible, if you'll open it up with me or turn it on to 2 Timothy chapter 3 today, we do continue our series called Explore God. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at questions that people often have about the Christian faith. Now, we're not the only church doing this series. We're actually participating with uh, over 100 churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex asking these questions and looking for biblical answers to the questions. And so today we're going to wrestle with this question of, is the Bible reliable? Now, as you would expect whenever you go to church, we're going to try to answer the questions from a biblical perspective. And so we will be looking at a passage of Scripture here in a little bit that deals with the fact that Scripture itself says this is what it's profitable for. Now, before we read the Scriptures, I I do just want to stop and thank Pastor George for his uh, ministry to us in music. We have just really had a fantastic time. And uh, give him the heads up that I'm going to ask you to sing that Blessed Assurance song again uh, that you sang in the last service here before the offering. So I'll give you that heads up uh, for that. Now, as Christians, and we would be in the camp of being conservative Christians. I mean, we don't hide that. The sign says Murphy Road Baptist Church. We don't make you guess for six months what we are. You know, we're, we're conservative uh, Christians, and, and we view the Bible as the revealed Word of God. And there's a couple of passages that are very near and dear to our heart. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a young man in the ministry by the name of Timothy, and he writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells Timothy, you know how your grandmother set you down and taught you the Bible. You know how your mother taught you and modeled for you the Bible. And he tells Timothy, continue on in the sacred scriptures. Do not forsake them because they are able to give you wisdom unto salvation in Christ Jesus. And then he writes, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, the Bible says, By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. Now, people have general agreement that the Bible has had a massive impact on society. It is by far the best-selling book of all time. Millions of people, yea, billions of people, over thousands of years, have been impacted by the Holy Scriptures. 
It is not a new book. It is not one that has just come out and just hit the New York Times bestsellers list. No, the Bible has been around for millennia. Many, many people have lived their lives guided by and founded upon the Word of God. And if you study society, virtually every area of society has been touched by the truths that are in Holy Scripture. Law has been impacted. Health care, our view towards others, have been impacted by Scripture. Education, art, science, virtually every area of life has been impacted by the teachings that we find in the Bible. And there comes a point when you are a church that you have to make a decision. Is the Bible the Word of God? Are we going to view it as a source of authority? Are we going to view it as inspired by our Heavenly Father? Or are we going to view it as just a book? As a pastor like myself, there comes a time where you must decide, is my call to preach the Bible, or am I a motivational speaker who kind of just seasons my talk with Scripture? What is my call? There comes a time where every Christian must decide, do I live my life under the authority of God's Word, or do I pick and choose which passages I like? There is an old saying that goes, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And so I want you to know that as your pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a man, I stand on the belief that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. And therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principle by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's where your pastor, that's where I stand when it comes to the Holy Scriptures. Now, there's a conundrum that people often have with the Bible. And that is that it presents to us a universal message. And that message is that God loves you. In fact, we're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so what? Loved the world. And it was out of his love for you and out of his love for me and not just you and me, but everyone, people that do not look like us, people that do not have the same values that we have, out of God's abundant, extravagant love, He sent His Son. And His Son lived a life that you and I could never live. His Son lived a life that was unstained by sin. 
His son was willing to die for you and for me. And we hear the story of how Christ on the cross was not merely an example dying for his faith or dying for his teachings, but on the cross he died as a substitute for you and for me. And so the story of the Bible is called the good news because it communicates to us that there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is eternal life, and it is offered to anyone Christ calls us simply to believe in Him. Now, this is a popular message. This is a message that's easy to embrace, that we sing about, that we rejoice within, because it answers the basic guilt that each of us possess. And it brings to us forgiveness for the things of our past. It brings to us meaning for our life today. And it brings to us hope for all eternity. And so at the starting point of our faith, we have what we call the moment of salvation, where you recognize that you are indeed a sinner and you turn from that sin. The theological word there is repentance, and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And a wonderful story takes place because you are forgiven you are justified, you are in Christ, and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, herein lies the conundrum, because at the moment of your salvation, you do not stop living. We are all still alive who have believed in the past, and so there's a reason why you are still here. And part of this journey of being a Christian is that God is going to mature you and grow you and change you. You see, being a Christian is not about God simply accepting me as the person that I am, but being a Christian is about God transforming me into the image of the great I am that we might look like and talk like and be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches me that there are some things that God has said that this is right and this is wrong. And as you read the pages of Scripture, you begin to see that there is this tension between a godly view of the world and a worldly or secular view of the world. There is a godly understanding of where life comes from and why life is valuable and the meaning and purpose of life and where it's going. And then there is a secular understanding of life. There is a godly understanding of marriage and family and why that is foundational to society. And then there is a worldly understanding of marriage and family. There's a godly understanding of sexuality and how sexuality illustrates the marriage covenant, and then there is a worldly understanding of sexuality. There is a godly understanding of how we should behave and how we should uh, 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 go about as far as our integrity and our ethics are concerned, and then there's a worldly understanding. There's a godly understanding of love, and then there's a worldly understanding of love. And on the pages of Scripture, you see this godly worldview and this secular worldview, they are often colliding, they are at tension with one another. 
And here's where uh, the Bible can become difficult to many. And that is that the Bible calls you with the Holy Spirit's help to alter your beliefs, your actions, your attitudes, your words, your lifestyle to the teachings of Scripture. And that is difficult for many because they would rather alter the Bible to themselves. Now, imagine if we took this same attitude into other areas of life. For some reason, within the spiritual area of life, we don't think we need to really change anything to the authority of what God has revealed to us. But in other areas of life, we, we do this all the time. Imagine you, you decided you wanted to become physically fit. And so you start reading the authorities on what it takes to become physically fit. And they say, you need to exercise. Three, four times a week, you've got to get the heart pumping. You need to eat better. You need to put down the hamburger and pick up the carrot. The authority tells you, you need to go to sleep. You need to start going to bed at night and trying to get at least eight hours of sleep. And if you're going to be physically fit, you need to exercise, you need to eat, you need to sleep well. And you say, nah, I like being a couch potato. And what I want to be is I want to be a physically fit couch potato. And you say to yourself, you know, this whole physical fitness stuff, if, if people really want to have people continue to participate in physical fitness, they really need to lower their standards because no one in the 21st century is going to be physically fit if they keep telling people that you're going to have to exercise, eat right, and go to bed at night. So what they need to do is they need to change the standards of what it means to be physically fit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to alter the standards of physical fitness so that it fits me. I'm going to redefine it. I'm going to take parts that I like and discard parts that I don't like, and then I'm going to sit on the couch, watch TV, enjoy a Slurpee, and pronounce myself physically fit. It's absurd. How about if you took that standard into education? You say, hey, I, I'm going to go back to college. I'm, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree, or I'm going, to, I'm going to pursue my master's or doctorate degree. And so you begin reading, and, and the school says that to do this, you've got to go to school. You've got to attend class. You have to study. And they're going to give you tests. And you say to yourself, nah, that's way too hard. What the school needs to do is just accept me as I am. And as I am, I don't like going to class. I don't like studying. I don't like tests. But I want to have that degree, and so what I'm going to demand is that they alter their catalog and their standards so that it fits me. You say, well, that'd be absurd. They would laugh you out of the place. And yet, that's exactly what many people want Christians to do to the sacred writings of our faith. Our holy scriptures have been around for thousands of years. People have lived and died by the truths of Scripture. This is the foundation 
upon which we build our faith. What we know about Jesus, we know about Him through the Scriptures. And we cannot alter the teachings or the truths of Scripture in order to meet uh, individual preference. Because the Scriptures will remain long after you and I have faded away. Well, the Bible teaches that there are five ways that it is absolutely reliable. And so look again with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I want you to notice, number one, that the Bible reliably reveals God. The Scriptures say that it is inspired. If you break down that word, it literally means God-breathed. And we believe that God inspired the Scriptures to such a degree that the words of Scripture are as He desires, that the words themselves are inspired by God. Do you have any friends that are close talkers? You know what I mean by a close talker? They get right up in your face whenever they talk, where it gets just a little bit uncomfortable, and you know what they ate for breakfast whenever they talk to you. Yeah, you you can smell their breath. Well, the Bible teaches us that God breathed the words of Scripture, that they come from the lungs of God, that they reveal to us His inner essence, His inner thoughts, that on the pages of Scripture we know God and we know His purposes and His ways. Now, aren't you glad that God is not a detached deity? This is actually one of the beauties of the Christian faith. In Hinduism, God is kind of a universe itself. He's kind of a a force that you fade back into. In Buddhism, God is the life force of the collective human experience. In Islam, God uh, puts down edicts and directions, but you do not have a personal relationship with God. In Christianity, God desires to be your heavenly Father. And so the same Creator that created all things, that spoke the universe into existence, the same Creator that is the absolute reality of all that is, also says, I want you to know me. I want you to know my heart. I want you to know how I've designed you. I want you to know how to live your life with purpose. I want you to know how you can be reconciled to me and that Heavenly Father intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed, so that we don't have to just guess about what God is like, but we can read the very words of Scripture and know this is what God is like. This is what He wants from me. This is what He's called me to be. This is how I'm supposed to live my life because God didn't create life and then say, hey, good luck with that. You're on your own. God created us and then He revealed Himself to us. Now, secondly, I want you to discover that the Bible reliably deals 
with life's ultimate questions. The Scriptures say that it is profitable for teaching. Now, one of the things that I love about church is that in church, we deal with the final events of life. In church, we wrestle with life's ultimate questions. If you think about society, there are very few places that you actually wrestle with life's ultimate questions. Questions like, what's the purpose of it all? What happens whenever you die? Where am I going to find comfort when I hurt? In the church, we deal with some of the great philosophical questions like, where does pain and suffering come from? What can we do about it? What has our Creator done about it? What is right? What is wrong? Where do we find family, purpose, meaning? These are questions that we wrestle with. And they're questions that the pages of Scripture give us answers to. Now, I realize that sometimes people don't like the answers, but that doesn't negate the fact that the Bible gives answers to these ultimate questions that life produces. So many times people just kind of float through life. You remember the feather from Forrest Gump? That's how many of us just live our life. We just float through life and all life becomes is your job, the next child activity, whatever it might be, just event to event, moment by moment. And we never stop and wrestle with these deep, philosophical, ultimate questions that the Bible provides us answers for. Thirdly, the Bible reliably reveals faulty thinking. The Scriptures say that it rebukes. Now, I know this is hard for you to believe, but sometimes you need correcting. Go ahead and look at the person sitting next to you and say to them, Sometimes, go ahead, sometimes you need correcting. Yeah. Now, don't get mad at your spouse for saying that because he or she was just doing what the preacher asked them to do. Okay? We all sometimes need correcting. Not long ago, I left my sneakers beside the bed one night. And my wife, my beloved bride, was on her way to the closet whenever her big toe met the base of my sneaker. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth in our bedroom that evening. And needless to say, I received a well-deserved rebuke. And sometimes the Scripture throws a yellow flag at us And as you are reading Scripture, it says, hold on a second, you're not headed in the right direction there. You need a rebuke. You need to change directions. Sometimes it also reveals our faulty thinking. You may recall that Jesus said about the evil one that his native language is to lie. And what evil does is it tries to convince you that that which is right is wrong and that which is wrong is right. And it's really easy 
as you begin uh, listening to sound bites that are out there in this communication age and perhaps uh, hanging with some of your coworkers or friends to begin developing negative or unhealthy thinking patterns. And then you read Scripture, and Scripture says, No, that's not the way of the Lord. And it rebukes your behavior. Now, one of the things that happens whenever you meet a rebuke is at that point, you have to decide, am I going to fight the rebuker or am I going to submit to the reality that the rebuker is right? And that happens whenever we read Scripture as well. Are you going to fight the Scriptures or are you going to submit to the truth of the Scriptures? Fourth, the Bible reliably gives me solutions to the greatest problems of life. It corrects. Now, this is huge because there is nothing more frustrating than to have the problem pointed out with no solutions. Do you have anybody in your life that does that? They're really good at telling you everything that's wrong, really good at telling you everything that needs to change, but really bad at giving you any kind of solutions. Well, the Greek word here refers to setting back up an object that has fallen. And one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is that it doesn't just leave us in the ditch. No, the Good Samaritan pulls you out of the ditch and restores you back to health. Every one of us in here have been hurt. We have all tried to do it our own way. If we were to peel back the layers of our lives, we have scars that testify to those areas of our life where we have turned to our own way and we have found ourselves broken. And I'm thankful that God doesn't leave you broken. He doesn't just give you a stern lecture but He gives you answers and He extends to you His love. And you can never run so far from God that you can outrun His love because His love even reaches to the pig pen of the prodigal son and brings the prodigal son back home. The Lord does not just rebuke. He corrects. He restores. And then fifthly, we see that the Bible reliably teaches me How to live in righteousness. To live forgiven. The Bible says it's profitable for training in righteousness. Verse 17 says, So that the man of God may be equipped, or may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, hear this. The beginning point of Christianity is a personal proclamation that says, I'm not okay by myself. I have done things which are wrong. I've sinned and I need forgiveness. And I am believing that God has done for me what I could not do for myself. I'm believing that Jesus is my Savior and Lord. I'm not just believing facts about Jesus, but I'm believing in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And you bow the knee embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you are confessing that you have a need for God to change your heart, to transform your soul. Now, God 
realizes that you're not going to be perfect right away. In fact, you won't be perfect until you go to heaven. But you're embracing that reality that I've done wrong. I need God's grace. I need his forgiveness. And I need God to change me. Now, the growing point in Christianity happens when the Holy Spirit invades your life. And the Holy Spirit empowers you towards training in righteousness. And you begin growing in the Scriptures. And you begin understanding who God is and His love for you and His purposes and His ways. And you begin becoming connected to your church family and joining life with other people who are seeking after God. And before you know it, the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Scriptures of God begin transforming you from the inside out and you become a new creation and you start seeing the world not through your own selfish lens, but you begin seeing the world through God's lens. You are a new creation. In Him, God didn't save you just for you to stay the same. He saved you so that you might be salt and light within this world, so that you might reflect the image of Christ to others. And so my prayer for you today is knowing that you are forgiven by grace in Christ, that you will submit yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit and to the clear teachings of Scripture, so that you might be like the Savior that you have embraced through faith. I want to see you grow. I want to see you mature. I don't want to just see you stay the same. I want to see God use your life in ways that you could never imagine for His glory. And I want to see you get past some of those things that hold you back and anchor you to your past. Because God God doesn't want you to live in the past. God wants you to live in the glorious present of His grace with the hope of eternity. A few years ago, there was a young preacher. And the young preacher was struggling early in his ministry with could he trust the Bible. He had a friend. His friend's name was Chuck. And Chuck told him that believing in the Bible was 50 years out of date. And for some time, the young preacher was really struggling with this. Am I going to be a preacher of the Bible or am I just kind of going to kind of give talks and sprinkle it with Scripture here and there? This troubled him so much that on an August night, the young preacher went for a walk in the woods because he, need to settle, he needed to settle this with God. And there were some things about the Bible that he didn't have all the answers for. And as he was walking, he was overcome by the Spirit of God and he knelt beside a tree stump. And there in the woods, he began to pray. The preacher writes that he prayed, Oh God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I do not have a solution. I can't answer some of the questions that Chuck and others are raising. But then he made this statement of faith. He said, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. The preacher writes that whenever he got up from his knees at Forest Home that August night, my eyes stung with tears, and I sensed the presence and the power of God as I had not sensed it in months. 
The young man's name was Billy Graham. And whenever he got up off of his knees in the woods that evening, he went out to preach and begin what became known as the Los Angeles Crusade. And from there, he began preaching all over the world so that billions of people literally have heard the gospel message from Billy Graham. In 1952, at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, a 13-year-old boy that came from an alcoholic, broken family. His father, at one point, had two families going at the same time. And as a young boy, that 13-year-old boy watched his mother thrown through windows and often prayed that the Lord would give him strength enough to beat up his dad one day. That 13-year-old boy in 1952 went to the Cotton Bowl and heard that preacher, Billy Graham, preach. And that night, the Lord touched his heart, and he bowed the knee, and he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that little boy eventually grew up and met a young lady who grew up in a home where her mother died at the age of two. At the age of three, she was abandoned by her first stepmother. At the age of four and five, she was abused by a stepmother from Grade school through grade school years, she was shipped around to home after home, whatever relative would take her in. But then when she was a young teenager, she came to know Christ as her Lord and Savior. And that little boy that was saved at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, at a Billy Graham crusade, met that young lady that no one ever loved. And together they built a home and they had three children and I call them mom and dad. Because they built their marriage and they built their family, although they had no models for how to do it, they did so based on the Word of God. And I want to I let you know this morning that if you will live your life based on the teachings of Scripture, if you will live your life following the Holy Spirit in your life and surrender your will to God's will, God can do things through your life. He can use your life for His glory, no matter what your story. And so there comes this time where a church has to decide, is the Bible the Word of God, or is it just a good book? Now, I don't know about you, but I've made that decision. The Bible's the Word of God. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church, I will preach the Bible as the Word of God. And so if this church doesn't want the Bible to be the Word of God, you need to find a new pastor. Because I'm going to preach it as such. A pastor must decide, is my call to preach the Bible, or am I a motivational speaker who gives little talks each week and kind of seasons it with passages of Scripture? What is my call? And a Christian must decide, do I live my life under the authority of God's Word or do I pick and choose the passages that I like and discard the passages that I don't like? Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? This morning, if you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm here at the front. Pastor George is here at the front, Brother Carrie's here at the front, and if we can pray with you, help you with any decision that you might have, it is our joy to do so. You may feel led during this time to pray, to sing, to pray with somebody. I ask you to follow the Holy Spirit's leadership. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have gathered as a church. 
We pray that it brings glory to your name. And Father, we thank you for the truth that we have in your word. And we thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us so that we might know you. And we pray that we might live our lives hungering and thirsting after righteousness with a hunger and thirst for the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, in Jesus' name that we worship. Amen.